0: Hello and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance podcast. This is the podcast where we discuss what leadership looks like in the modern insurance business. We talk to insurtech leaders and founders, innovators and change agents from the insurance industry. We also talk to thought leaders from outside the industry, such as organizational psychologists, performance coaches and investment professionals. Anyone who can add value to the conversation on how to lead insurance businesses of the future. Good morning and welcome to the Leadership and Insurance Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Bond, and I'm very lucky today to be joined by uh, Philip from Now Insurance. Uh, Philip, good morning.
1: How are you? Good morning, Alex. I'm doing well. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm saying good morning. It, it's probably not morning where you are. What What? What? what or is it? It's, it's 8 a.m. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> it's morning. Uh,
0: yeah, in fact, it's funny enough, it's, uh, yeah, it's, two, it's uh, two o'clock here. I don't know why I'm saying good morning anyway, but um, it's because it's I, I put these out in the morning. So um, by the secret of recording, I have to say good morning. But, um, but yeah, no, thank you for joining me. And um, obviously, you know, for the folks at home, it'd be great if you could kind of introduce Now Insurance and uh, what you guys are looking to achieve.
1: Yeah, certainly. So Now Insurance is an artificial intelligence enabled commercial insurance platform. And uh, where we are a bit unique in the marketplace is we are focused on professional liability. And so, professional liability, management liability, that's our space. And uh, currently, where we're having those successes in healthcare professional liability and uh, business services classes.
0: Yeah. So, you've been launched about two years, as I understand it. Um, is that kind of bias? Related is that response to the kind of market conditions because uh, your timing for launching and, and and the COVID pandemic possibly didn't help you out. one would imagine.
1: No, and actually, um, while the company's been in development for two years, we did actually launch in March of 2020. So, oh, wow. just as the first wave of the pandemic was <clears throat> hitting the shores in the U.S., uh, that's when we launched our company and. Um, I'm grateful, actually, for that opportunity. Um, not grateful for the pandemic, of course, but uh, cool. it was a true test of our our kind of business plan. And uh, so, selling directly to the consumer dur- during a shelter-in-place uh, economy was a challenge and also an opportunity. So, uh, and that is why also we we focused on the medical professional liability classes, uh, nurses, nurse practitioners um, nurse staffing agencies, home healthcare agencies, the, uh, the industries that were relevant during a pandemic. And, uh, we saw a lot of success there.
0: Yeah. 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 It's interesting. The amount of people I've spoken to that, um, uh, sort of echoed similar sentiments, obviously. Yeah. No, one's grateful for a pandemic and what's been happening, but it's been really interesting to see how you look at your business differently. You know, is it fit for purpose? Um, are we, digitally native enough um and that's an interesting question for answer for a business like yourself that's you know using things like artificial intelligence because you might use all the clever tech but you're structurally as a business you know were you, were you set up the right way were you were you sort of comfortable to or work remotely did that all work quite seamlessly for you
1: yeah so um I, on the subject of you know, preparing versus launch and then the education that you get after that. (laughs) You know, that's, (laughs) you know, the best laid plans, as I said. So, yeah, we built the product in the platform for ease of use and online distribution. And really, you know, when we were developing the company, we were told by a lot of potential investors that, um, you know, if we could convert profitably on our site, then we've achieved what most couldn't. And so we we saw that as the challenge, and and built our product to you know, for ease of use and conversion on our site, and uh, to maximize um, conversion metrics and and drive down the actual or the average customer acquisition costs. Because Google's going to charge you ten dollars a click. You know, whether you're selling or not. Um, so it's all passed through. Uh, so optimizing the, the customer acquisition cost by optimizing our conversion ratio was the, the, the game, as we were told. And then we got into it and, uh, and we built our platform for conversions and we actually saw healthy conversions, as I mentioned to you before. Um, we did convert profitably on our site and uh, we're achieving what we were told was the number one obstacle, you know, converting profitably. And we were able to do that in the very first month. Mm-hmm. Um With some testing, you know, not our first ad campaign converted profitably, but by tweaking and adjusting to the the marketplace and, you know, had a relevant message to our target audience, then, you know, we're able to convert profitably. Mm -hmm. But what we found was, excuse me, is um, that wasn't the biggest challenge that we were going to face. The biggest challenge that we actually were going to face is... Proper risk selection and underwriting in a platform that is unmanned. Essentially, you know, there's a lot of insurance underwriting expertise residing in the individuals that are leading departments and creating products, and they manage teams and oversee the performance of of the underwriting. Um, and in a digital world, we have to re- we have to replace that. We have to create that kind of expertise in the platform. Mm-hmm. And that ended up being our biggest challenge. So over the last 10 months since we launched um, and started to ail our digital marketing uh, capabilities, we've been focusing on building that um, kind of artificial intelligence underwriter and insurance uh, or our you know subject matter expert within a digital world. Mm-hmm. How does in very layman's terms, how is that
0: done? How do how do you go about that? So you'll have you still got underwriters, or are you trying to replace them completely digitally? What's the what's the kind of nuts and bolts of it?
1: Sure, yeah. So we do have underwriters, and um, what they kind of. Um, fill two different or three roles actually within the organization. First, the most basic is uh, on the call center. So we have three levels of call center activity. You know, answering the phone and directing it to the right uh, um, individual. The second level is uh, basic uh, answering questions about the policy and the product and the website. And billing, and, and then there's the underwriting side. So, if someone has a, got a very specific question about coverage or wants a quote while they're on the phone, about 20% of our sales are done through our call center. Mm-hmm. And um, because <laughs> we built a mobile friendly site to Create you know ease of access to the applications on our site, and what it did is it really created an ease of access for people to call us because they're yeah. on their mobile phones, yeah. and uh, so they just call rather than do the app. Um, so the underwriters are manning the manning the call center, working with insureds uh, through their issues, but then also um, the underwriters are quality control and are the subject matter experts behind the machine, teaching the machine, working with the programmers and the you know um, software engineers to uh, you know, develop the products and enhance the products. So they're they're our quality control and our kind of our lead product experts. Mm -hmm. And then ultimately, they're also responsible for um, carrier relationships and managing our capacity and making sure that the results, you know, match our carrier's expectations.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So there's still a role for an underwriter, absolutely. But the technology just makes the process more efficient. You know, what used to be, even for the simplest accounts, there's still a PDF application, a loss run that's generated, licenses are copied and sent in a, in an email submission that goes to an agent that then goes to 15 carriers. Underwriters put it in a queue, clear the submission. You, you know how all this works. We all know how this works. But it's a week-long pro- process to get a quote for, you know, a nurse or a nurse practitioner, which really can be done in three minutes on our website. So it's really about efficiency and uh, ease of access. Mm-hmm. But, you um, and we can get into this more later, you know, the carrier's expectations are interesting on the insure tech side. Um, they just see it as, oh, you're going direct to consumer, you're, you're not using an agent, so this is gonna be cheaper customer acquisition, and it's not. Um, it's more expensive actually than using an agent, mm-hmm. but it gives the, uh, the insured the tools that they're looking for, access to an immediate quote and an insurance certificate within minutes. It's, it's really a better customer journey in a lot of ways, on these, especially in these very small accounts. Uh, than working with an insurance agent in the the traditional model Mm. so you're not is it operated as an mga presently are you an mga model now Um, we're currently structured as an mga um and uh, that was the best structure for us to launch our um our intention is to be full stack which means you know we take risk in the in the products so we will have our own carrier or reinsurer um, but the best use of our capital right now is in developing our technology and our platform. Mm. Uh, so all of our capital raise is going toward that. Uh, eventually, we will, we will raise capital for our own insurance company, but that's you know when the when the time is appropriate. Mm.
0: What's what's the big? I suppose that's the thing. Because I mean, you've run MGAs before, haven't you? It's, it's, it's
1: the, I have, yeah. This is, you know, I kind of lost count. This is probably my third or so, <laughs> depending on how you count them. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. On MGA's that were inside of brokerage firms, and you know, and I started my career on the insurance carrier side. Yeah, sure.
0: Because I, yeah, you know, I'm a big fan of the MGA model. I think it's um, you know, it's particularly it's particularly good for things like this, isn't it? When you're sort of essentially trying to get your tech right, and um, you know, you. You, you want to kind of prove something. I mean, I, I'm always stunned that there are people out there that go straight in full stack. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's kind of, you know, it, 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 there's no training wheels with that, right? You've got to just dive straight in and you're accepting risk. But what's kind of your thinking behind going towards full stack? What, what, Where's the sort of big advantages for you? Um, is it around, like, sort of product development or is... Yeah,
1: that's exactly it. Yeah. You know, as an MGA, it's very capital efficient. Uh, that's the advantage. Um, the disadvantage is um, there's this uh, perception that there is um, um, the the interests aren't aligned with the carrier, that an MGA is focused on commissions and not underwriting profit is is kind of the the negative reputation that MGAs have in the space and so every carrier that we talk to about uh, providing capacity for now insurance uh, every product that we want to develop there's just a longer lead time because we have to get over this um, alignment of interest hurdle and there are ways to do it with uh, profit sharing commissions and swing commissions and things like that that can replicate a quota share uh, reinsurance arrangement But um, it takes about 18 months, in my experience, for an MGA to bring a product to market uh, because of the amount of um, work it takes to find a carrier that buys into the vision and trusts the MGA. And you have to prove your track record and and you have to build credibility in the marketplace. So that takes time. Um, If we had our own risk capital, then my experience is we can bring products to market in about six months. So significantly shaving off time in product development and funding support, because um, once you have your paper in place, a front or a participating front, uh, reinsurance structure where they buy into the grander scheme of of, uh, our product development. And if we're taking a 15-20% quota share, you basically have the structure in place to start really ramping up product development and bringing things to market.
0: Mm. It's it's interesting the MGA model from that kind of I think you made a really uh, important point there is that it's about kind of the there's basically it's about trust is the, the challenge of kind of getting trusted partners um, because I think it's it's always unfair that kind of um, you know essentially that that the MGAs are kind of bothered about volume because that's it's more about volume rather than profitability. Um, and it's it seems a bit of a moot point because if, if if you continue to write an unprofitable book of business, then you won't get your capacity renewed. So um, you know there is that protection. So it, it's sort of strange that it kind of gets tarred so much with this brush because um, um, I mean obviously you know lots of people have been burnt in the past. There's been some really bad NGOs that have been run badly, but but surely if you kind of it kind of I suppose what I'm getting at is it sort of doesn't make sense to me So the argument itself is kind of um, dies in the water because you go, well, if, if people don't write your profitable business then stop stop providing them with capacity. Um, but then we, we, we all know those MGA's out there that burn through capacity and then just get new capacity providers. And everyone stood scratching their head going, how have they managed to get capacity? So, um, um, yeah, but it's, it's a great model. I mean, and I think I think those relationships I, I was what's the kind of U.S., um, uh, relationship with capacity providers like? Because one of the challenges I always see is that it's a it's an annual renewal process and capacity, particularly in the UK. But is the US the same Is it kind of 12
1: months uh, capacity arrangements? Well, um, I say this uh, without that much of experience. Uh, not much experience with domestic carriers. Uh, my primary relationships are with Lloyd's, so um, Ascot and are our primary, um, you know, supporters. And um, in my career, spent mostly creating products with Lloyd's of London. Um, so, uh, and you're right, <clears throat> it is an annual contract with Lloyd's, and uh, that year comes up so quickly, and it's. Yeah, yeah. it's we're constantly in a process of preparing the renewal submission. Um, in the U.S., uh, generally, no, the contracts aren't annual. They're, you know, good until canceled with a uh, cancellation provision that's, you know, 60, 90 days or so. Uh, they can be kind of tight. Uh, but, um, and, yeah, so it's it's... The first couple of years there's a lot of oversight monitoring with the domestic carriers and then after a few years you kind of go on autopilot and you only hear from them if there's a problem and mm. um, i think there are a lot of advantages to that you know it definitely allows you to kind of um, focus on the front side of the office you know the product distribution and the performance of the underwriting and not so much creating a submission every you know every year which i said comes up often and if you have more than one contract more than one product you you just really get out of that renewal cycle Mm. um so yeah there's some advantages um you know with lloyd's you know they claim the um syndication process and having more stability because you have more support you can if you lose one syndicate you haven't lost your program but um i don't know if that. In my view, has has created more stability for insurance programs in the U.S. versus working with a domestic carrier. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they do the same thing. The domestic carrier does the same thing with reins behind the scenes that we're doing with you know syndicates on their front end uh, as a Lloyd's government holder. So. I don't know, um, but yeah, my programs are with Lloyd's, and uh, I'm very grateful for the capacity because uh, they've supported me through my career. And and when we talked earlier about building trust, um, that's something that I have done in the Lloyd's market, and they've built trust with me. So, um, you know, that's a relationship that's working well. You know, the only disadvantage at this point is, and I I complain about the renewal cycle. It's um, it's really not that big a deal when you have. Um, your ducks in a row a lot of this information is at your fingertips already anyway mm.
0: yeah I, I think a lot of those structures yeah feel like contrary to scaling so um, I'm, I'm I'm always intrigued it's a it's, uh, I think the model's great and it just it just seems those things like 12-month cycles um, it seems too short term and um, yeah because I, 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 I wonder whether it sort of just ties into kind of you know British uh, business as long as a, for a long time reputation, we had kind of a very short term, it's it's a very short term view, view, you know, we're very much kind of in the short term. And I think we should, you know, to make things successful, particularly insurance, I mean, the 300 year old industry, it's it's surprising that we don't have kind of a a more long term view with things like um, MGA relationships. And uh, um, yeah, it's it's, it's unusual. I mean, I I was going to ask you about like now insurance, uh, you know, Obviously, you're sort of very much a sort of tech-enabled insurance proposition, but very much a traditional insurance offering in many respects. Um, you know, do you think do you think commercial insurance has got a bit of a bad reputation, um, particularly in that kind of SME, um, smaller commercial insurance relationship um, that some that some of your clients are kind of involved in?
1: Um, I haven't heard any reputational kind of issues around small to middle market business. Actually, I've heard the opposite over the course of my career. Um, one, um, one Lloyd's uh, syndicate um, leader uh, once said to me that uh, the smallest fish are the sweetest. And so he loved the small um, kind of cottage industry, small accounts. Mm-hmm. Um, the feeling was they're less of a, a litigation target and um, so on one side, you know, running small business, you have a lot of limits exposed per revenue unit. So that could be a criticism. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard that before. Um, also, they don't have the risk management in place that a larger account does. Mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, what we've seen is that smaller accounts um, do perform better in than larger accounts in in the uh, commercial insurance market. Mm -hmm. I think primarily because the large accounts have so much competition around them. Um, The number of carriers that are willing to try different underwriting approaches just to try to make that risk fit into their model or their risk appetite, whether it's uh, getting aggressive on loss rating, discounting losses, ignoring bad loss years, Mm-hmm. Um, ignore the high and ignore the low. There are all kinds of tricks that you can do to try to make it look like a better account than it is yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, because they want to get that $3 million on the books. And, um, you know, getting back to kind of MGA's reputations in the, in the industry and, you know, burning through markets. Um, I think for every bad MGA I've seen in the marketplace, I've seen a bad underwriting shop on the commercial insurance side as well. Yep. Or two, uh, yeah. um, you know, underwriters at their desk are still trying to make numbers, trying to make their bonuses, trying to get the top line growth that an MGA is also interested in. Mm. And so, um, but yeah, on the commercial insurance side, I think on larger accounts, you do see more creative underwriting.
0: Mm. So that that kind of brings me to kind of talk about insurance's reputation with the kind of end consumer so if if this SME um if these SME clients are such sweet berries as it were um why do you think there's a it just feels like there's a gap between what we're providing as an industry to those SME um clients um and their expectations um and I think some of it's been proved to be fair particularly in the UK, we've had some problems with um, you know, BI cover um, particularly, um, you know, do you think we've got a bit of a job there to do as an, an industry to the end consumer, the small business owner?
1: Um, yeah, um, certainly on the on the business interruption side, uh, it's been a tough year. Yeah, of course. Um, so uh, kind of ignoring the high and ignoring the low on the last year. Um, putting on my creative underwriting hat, then you know, do we treat a pandemic year as a one in 100 year events or is this something that's gonna happen more frequently? That's something for the industry to decide. Um, as far as kind of um, the opportunities in the small to middle market space and uh, the unique needs of a small account versus how the commercial industry, commercial insurance industry is addressing those needs. Um, for me, it's, or from my perspective, It's really an issue of efficiency. Um, Larger brokerage accounts, you know, I've I've heard stories. I have not worked in a in a large multinational agency, but um, you know, there's a certain threshold of revenue they're expected to achieve per account, or you don't get credit for it in your projections or budgets or compensation. So, Mm -hmm. just say twenty thousand dollars is the threshold on a large agency. So you know, small accounts aren't paying $20,000 in premium. It's definitely not generating $20,000 in revenue uh, for the agent. So um, that then kicks that account opportunity down to uh, middle market, regional or local agents. And so they're the ones focused on the small accounts. Um, And then on the carrier side, uh, again, it's a matter of efficiency. You can spend three hours working on a uh, $2 million account, uh, rating it and getting it through your underwriting process, or you can spend you know, 20 minutes on $1,000 accounts. Well, I think most underwriters would rather spend that three hours on the larger accounts, even though the odds of winning it are much less. Um, and the margins may be just as good if you have $3 million worth of those small accounts, maybe just as good or if not better um but it's an efficiency game you know how you still have to issue a policy you still have to run clear it in the system that a lot of uh the work required for a small account exists on the large accounts as well and so you, it's really difficult to, to squeeze the efficiency out of the process to make those small accounts profitable on the underwriting side um from an expense ratio perspective but then you know on a on an underwriting results pers- from the underwriting results perspective um, it's worth it. That's our position, and so we're building the efficiencies into the front end to generate the underwriting results on the back end that we want to achieve with these smaller accounts.
0: Mm. Yeah, I mean, say so, yeah, that's it makes perfect sense, and it sort of leads into your your model perfectly. Um, how did you go about approaching? Yeah, you know, you're not a tech guy, so how did you go about kind of approaching? building a sort of really heavily tech enabled uh, business. Uh, What's the kind of starting point? Um, Is is it part of your founding team? Yeah, what was your, how did you make that work?
1: Yeah, um, it's, it's, it has been an interesting and, and really fun journey, you know, uh, very rewarding as well. As I mentioned, um, you know, our first goal and, and focus was on um, digital marketing conversion ratios and customer acquisition costs versus the lifetime value of the account. And um, so the, uh, the tech savvy component uh, that we needed there was an experienced digital marketing Um you know, manager, and so I partnered early on with a gentleman who has, you know, twenty years experience in the fintech industry, um, distributing products online and uh, and through traditional uh, uh, kind of avenues as well, uh, including direct response television, um, mailers, and you know, in the old school mail as well as Google Ads and things like that. So that was kind of where i needed to complement my experience on the insurance side with somebody else with a different set of experience or uh you know tools and expertise mm-hmm. um so once we established the digital marketing uh, capabilities and campaigns and saw the results there the next challenge was of course on the tech side how are we going to differentiate ourselves from everyone else who is selling commercial insurance online and and we have heavy competition with the online agencies as well so um you know the people who have got a portal that APIs into um, commercial insurers uh, rating engines and provide comparative quotes. Um, our model is much different from that, but we still have to compete with those platforms. Yeah. So how do we differentiate? And it was really Leaning into my insurance experience with, you know, having done a few online portals for specific use. So for an, a state association or a specific product um, in a very regional um, focus, uh, we I have done online products in the past and saw that the number one issue was adverse selection. And I just saw recently um, in the news one analyst uh, was questioning, you know, Root, which went public this past year, hmm. um, you know, some of their underwriting results and challenges. And, um, you know, I can relate to every one of the issues identified in essentially Root's growing pains, if, if they exist. You know, this is one person's opinion sure. uh, that I read. Um, but they said that adverse selection seems to be impacting, you know, Root's um, underwriting, you know, uh, you know efforts. And so the, the challenge with a web portal is um, it's available to everybody, anyone. Um, you can go to Now Insurance's website from Iceland or India and uh, and apply for insurance. You know our coverage only covers U.S. operations, but you know there there are very few restrictions on these portals. And and with that in mind, there are very few kind of um, underwriting filters as well. They're basically just manual underwriting um, mechanisms. a lot of cases they're just replacing an excel spreadsheet put in your exposures select your territory select your limit deductible and here's your price and um and so the challenge is going to be keeping um the uh the accounts that can't get coverage elsewhere they can't get coverage through the traditional model from going online and buying from you and um so whether it's roots or now insurance or any of the other competitors in this space whether it's personal lines or commercial lines what we have to do is prevent a shopper who has no other options from finding the us as a, uh, an opportunity to get insurance with the least you know, resistance, you know, the, fewer, the fewest underwriting um, screens so adverse selection is a, is a, the biggest challenge i think for the industry and and also there was a report recently i'm sorry if i'm getting too insurance kiki but there's a, a there's a report recently done by mckenzie that uh, tracked the uh, kind of performance metrics of top performing commercial insurers in the us and they they basically asked the question you know to be a top performer, where are your efficiencies? Where are you outperforming the market? Is it on customer acquisition or is it underwriting? And what they found is underwriting um, results far outweigh efficiencies on customer acquisition when it comes to top performers. Mm -hmm. Top performers outperform their competition by, I think it was something like almost 40% on their loss ratio. Yeah. But on the customer acquisition side, they're only, if they're better, they're only 10% better on customer acquisition costs. Cause it's just, it almost seems like customer acquisition costs are like water. It's going to find the, it's going to find its equilibrium, right? Mm-hmm. As soon as there's an acquisition, um, a way of acquiring customers that's more efficient or less expensive, then the competition kind of dives in and bids it up and eventually kind of reaches that equilibrium. I think yeah. you see that with Google ads, you see that with association compensation structures, you see it with insurance agents. And so um, there's really it's really hard to be more efficient on the customer acquisition side um, because it's such an efficient market there. Mm. But on the underwriting side, uh, risk selection and pricing um, can move the needle more dramatically. And that's where we see also the opportunity in the insurtech space is as we move beyond this whole customer acquisition cost versus lifetime value um, uh, scorecard that we're all being judged by, Mm -hmm. Um, it really comes down to risk selection and pricing at the end of the day for stability. As you said, we're going to lose our capacity if we can't generate the results as an MGA or as a carrier. We'll lose our, you know, if you're a carrier or an agent or an MGA, if you can't deliver the underwriting results, you're going to lose your capacity.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm, yeah, no, completely. And um, Philip, never apologise for being too insurance geeky on this podcast. It's, uh, it's literally the premise of the podcast. You'll be, perfectly, you'll be as geeky as you like, so it's more than welcome, and especially if you're going to roll out some good, uh, some good McKinsey facts. Um, um, yeah, and that's a good one. I am intrigued about this, though. That there's, there's, there's something that's, that occurred to me over a few podcasts, and, 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 and a lot of the time we're on here talking about efficiencies and better underwriting and, and better results and, and risk selection um and then uh, and this is certainly not being leveled at you but but i think i think um you know a lot of that stuff gets fed into kind of creating more profit for and rightly so for the insurer the carrier or the mga or or, or you know the insurance entity um but sometimes i think you know are we missing passing some of that back to the consumer you know you you can choose to kind of take the money and make more profit or you can choose sometimes to create a sort of premium experience um and do you think sometimes we miss the opportunity to create better with that with that income and and we focus too much on kind of just trying to create the margin on the same product by being more efficient that way
1: i think absolutely the industry misses that opportunity Mm. especially on the commercial insurance side of the space, you know, it's it's seen, I think by carriers to be kind of an impersonal relationship where on the personal line side, um, you know, the auto carriers, the homeowners carriers, they know that, you know, word of mouth reputation can make you or break you. And um, on the commercial insurance side where no carrier has more than a 5% market share, it's very fragmented um and you know it's business to business and so um i feel like they don't put much um effort into the customer experience there they're really more interested in um wooing the agent than creating a better experience for the insured Mm. and um and on the profitability side you know assuming that uh technology does improve um loss results um, is that an opportunity then to invest in the, in the customer relationship? Uh, we believe so. That's where we're investing. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, you know, we have the hard market, soft market cycles that also impact us, you know. So every carrier, I think, in the back of their mind when they're making money thinks that they have to sock that away for a rainy day because you have to build your war chest for the soft market cycle. Mm-hmm. And, um, so we build our balance sheets and then we lose our balance sheets, um, in the soft market. And, um, and so that's the investment that carriers seem to be making is, um, investing in your balance sheet so that you can have the war chest required to weather a soft market cycle, weather the next disaster, um, be around to play again is the name of the game. And, um, so how much is available out of that war chest to improve the customer relationship and experience. And um, so that's where the efficiencies also come in and that creates the, that bit of extra margin. And also a more efficient process is, a pr- is, is I think it will be appreciated by the consumer hmm. faster time, uh, you know, response times to questions or changes to the policy, faster res- response times to get a quote or bind coverage. Um, but then also, Know, we can invest more in risk management and data services where we might be able to provide you know, the consumer what we see um, in the way of their risk profile. Uh, in the health insurance industry, our healthcare industry, um, insuring healthcare providers, um, what we're seeing right now is really a, a kind of a distressing um, uh, kind of market cycle in the sense that the pandemic has um, affected health care as well and that elective you know office visits and elective procedures have been put on the shelf and you know and they're focusing on the urgent care of you know covid and so revenues are down 20 to 40 percent depending on the industry and which cycle you're in but we're also in a hard market which means premiums and rates are going up. So here's there's kind of perfect storm of l- losing a lot of business in 12 months, but also seeing your insurance rates go up dramatically. Mm-hmm. And so we see a lot of clients that are kind of very disappointed in the commercial insurance uh, industry for essentially penalizing them in a year where they felt like they already had enough penalties he- heaped on them. And um, so yeah, there's definitely an opportunity for us to invest in the customer experience and maybe showing them why, you know, why their risk profile warrants a rate increase when uh, their exposures are down. You know, how can we help them navigate what is a good risk and what is a bad risk from our perspective and where will they be penalized in the rating process if they continue down a certain path? You know, in our case, it's correctional um, working in a correctional facility or a long-term care facility or an urgent care facility is considered very high risk, but it was very profitable for them in the last 12 months. So they've seen their exposures skew more towards high risk uh, procedures, which means their rates went up, even though their total revenues went down.
0: I think that's it. I think, you know, you make it, we've got this information that we don't share proactively. Um, Something that became I became conscious of, I was doing a podcast with um, uh, some guys in um, Hellas Direct and we were talking about exactly this issue. And and I said that the disadvantage um, my insurers have is I've never had to claim. So because I've never had to claim, um, they've had no interaction with me other than to charge me money once a year uh, on a renewal or or to change. And so therefore, my relationship with them is is completely transactional. but i said there's no there's no rule book that says it has to be that way there's no rule book that says oh mr insurer when you insure me for professional indemnity cover you can't you know share information with me that adds value uh, you know i'm not i'm not saying how much i might interact or not but but it seems like a bad model to be like essentially charge me once a year and then disappear and never speak to me again and that's why you know i'm never going to stick as a consumer because it's just a transaction and therefore my cover theoretically is kind of irrelevant as to who holds it. So I think, I think if we can not just kind of create the touch points that we know exists to be better, but create new touch points and create, you know, value, uh, valued information sharing or kind of, um, you know, risk added services and, but that I am aware that those things cost money. So I think it's about making the business is as efficient as possible so you know there's a lot of use of ai and technology uh, to, to to create the process of being more efficient but yeah taking some of that saving and probably investing in touch points because then you know if you get a customer for life that that is very profitable um, as we know because the acquisition is the cost uh, but but um but yeah I, I just i i personally i see that and i just think it's such a missed opportunity so it's interesting that to hear you going down that um is, is that because if you decided to kind of are you starting from the consumer and then working back is that has that been the model because it seems to me because you're taking very specialist kind of areas that you're
1: focusing on yeah it's um we definitely focused on the consumer when we launched and once that was kind of working over on the side and um, and doing its thing as expected uh, you know when I say its thing the generating traffic to the site generating engagement with our site and ultimately applications and, and bind orders um, once that was working and meeting expectations we we turned and and I don't think I completely uh, answered your question earlier about as a non-tech person how did I actually get into the tech business or how did I find success in technology mm-hmm. and it you know it started with just one kind of anchor uh software engineer who then grew a team around him someone who got what we were doing at an early stage and i just challenged him with you know it'll probably be too too expensive and maybe technology doesn't exist but can we do this and um i can't give it away because we're we're applying for patents in some of these areas so (laughs) (laughs) but um i was spitballing ideas with a software engineering team and um and that's, that's how a lot of this um, got traction. So going back to your question now about uh, essentially is it customer focus that we, you know, we apply the technology to or, or how are we kind of um, seeing the customer journey and addressing that with both our technology and the insurance products. And it's kind of a, a barbell distribution, you know, heavily weighted on the consumer experience on the front end. But then we we just know from from my experience and in the team that also can see, you know the obstacles that are going to be in our way if we want to go for, or when we go from just throwing some examples out, two million in annual premium to 50 million in annualized premium, and we want to do that over the next two years. Mm-hmm. Um, what are the obstacles? What tools will we need to get there? And investing on that side. So that's really kind of. Carrier facing, reinsurance relationship facing, and um, and integrating that into the customer experience so that it, when we do add the the tools, the filters, the artificial intelligence rating components, um, that it doesn't adversely affect the consumer experience. That they don't basically it it just improves. That's that's the challenge, you know, improving the customer experience while also bringing the the insurance required filters and tools. Um, if that's that's our challenge and we feel like we have a solution there.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think that's going to be, I mean, it sounds really obvious when we say it and I'm, I'm amazed how often we have to talk about it in, in insurance that's going off. Oh, Got to put the customer first. <laughs> Do you think Yep. Yeah. Like in, in every other industry, I think, um, and I don't, I think it's cause there's a, there's the removal of that. And I think it does come back to maybe the point we've talked about the the touch points within, with your consumer, your actual end user of the, the product, the, uh, the small business owner or, 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 or the business exec, or, you know, we're quite removed quite often from them. Um, and then sometimes I think I feel like digitizing the process. Um, if you, if you don't get it right, then you're putting more distance it might be very efficient but there's there's no relationship being built there um so that can be a risk us
1: sometimes it can be yeah um technology definitely creates distance between individuals uh and can be cold and impersonal mm. um but also it can be quite engaging you know um, how long can we step away from our smartphones before we feel very kind of naked and vulnerable? So, um, uh, so we are tied to technology for, um, you know, the things that are important to us, the immediate gratification and touch points that we need to be able to communicate with people um, and uh, and stay in touch with whether it's news cycles or our email or text or social media, mm-hmm. you know the things that we're relying upon to stay connected now are on our phones. Mm-hmm. So um, and you know rely on a technology platform. So in our case, I think and getting back to just what's been a theme for the last few questions is, how do you create that in customer engagement that's relevant to the customer it's easy for us on the insurance side to say oh what if we created a risk management program you know wouldn't customers really appreciate that but what i've seen in my career is in when the insurance company provides risk management you get the insured's attention for you know a couple hours and then they go back to doing what they were doing before you know um and it's, Uh, it's hard for an insurance carrier to ingrain uh, risk management in an organization in just a one-day seminar. And um, so what really moves the needle for the insured? What kind of information will they value? How do you stay engaged and relevant beyond just that insurance purchase that happens once a year? That's the challenge for the industry. We have a lot of ideas, but we don't know how valuable it's going to be to the insured at the end of the day until we try it um the, the expectations are so low on the insured side it's hard to get really good feedback from them like what do you want from us besides insurance they're like yeah insurance is fine it's we're, we're <laughs> <laughs> i really don't want any more text messages or emails from you yeah, guys it, or, I'm, I'm good. Yeah. or one thing cheaper insurance uh,
0: <laughs> and the same cover and that yeah but that's precisely the problem isn't it and i think um you know obviously completely different industries, but certainly on my side, you know, what, what I do for a living, you know, I, I provide, you know, um, recruitment services and, and and there's been this big challenge about, um, you know, if you're only popping up and saying, oh, we can solve your recruitment problems and then you disappear again and you're not seen again. It's like, right, how do you, how do you continuously add value along on the on the chain? And I think insurance um, is, is like every industry. And I think the interconnectedness we've got now is, allows you to do much more you know what's to say and this is where this embedded insurance is is probably such a hot topic is that you know what's the what's to make it kind of insurance have to be so isolated is to just offer that um or just play in that space um you know there's nothing there's nothing stopping the the insurance industry involving itself in because it's so intrinsically involved anyway um, um but yeah i i it's definitely a creative challenge, I think, for insurance um, uh, companies is to sort of say, how do we engage in a way that consumers actually want us there? You, you know, <laughs> otherwise we're just trying to engage with them on things as you say that they just don't want us there for. Um, yeah. You know, where's the balance between asking the consumer as well, and then and then telling them and, and, and the the oft used henry ford quote of you know if I ask people what they want they'll they'd say I'll pass the horse and you know i suppose is that one of the advantages of being a very digitally native um insurance business can you can you make decisions and changes quite quickly is that is is that one of the key changes
1: yes absolutely uh, we saw this when we launched the company back in march last year uh, we originally targeted massage therapists, personal trainers, and um, the health and wellness industry. Right. And, uh, yeah, and yeah, and and uh, that those industries sadly were decimated by shelter in place, and mm-hmm. so we had to quickly pivot. And um, and that pivot only took us 24, 36 hours to um, wow. contemplate, evaluate, and implement. Wow. And um, and we saw results immediately versus if we're in a traditional insurance uh, model uh, relying on 2,000 agents across the US, it would take months to articulate that change in risk appetite and to see the results in the submission flow and bound accounts. Hmm. So yeah, absolutely being um, data-driven and um, kind of web-based allows us to pivot and be more responsive to the economy and conditions than it would in a traditional model.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, that's great. Yeah, that's some, that's some pretty swift turnaround times. Um, what's um, conscious of time? Actually, we we, we don't want to stay our, overstay our welcome with people's ears or, or eyes. So, um, um, I just wanted to ask you, yeah, what's what's coming up in the next twelve months for now insurance? What can we look forward to um, from you guys? And, and and what's what's on your plate at the moment that you're sort of going
1: through? Yeah. um, Exciting times. Um, So we launched with our minimum viable product. And so that is targeting individual licensed professionals and, um, and these individuals act are, are, are a business, but what's next for us is moving further along that small to middle market chain, more institutional risks, um, more complex risks in the health insurance our healthcare space as well as business services and when I say business services, I mean consultants and event planners and, and those kinds of miscellaneous EO type classes. Mm-hmm. So larger institutional accounts and while we target those we'll be implementing the artificial intelligence um, rating engines that, that I've talked about that um, are currently in beta mode. And then um, expanding more into management liability products, Dno, EPli, and then also expanding broader into professional liability space as well. So we want to own that professional liability space. Uh, while a lot of our competitors that are kind of GL uh, commercial lines focused say they can write professional liability, we all know that the most successful professional liability platforms and in, in kind of traditional insurance speak uh, have been specialists. And uh, we will be the online specialists for professional liability and management liability products. Nice. That is, a, that is a very good statement of intent to end on, I think.
0: So, um, yeah, I'll, I'll do that then. No, Philip, thank you so much for being a guest. I really appreciate it. Um, and um, where can where, where's the best place to get in contact with you if anyone's got any questions and want to reach out? Because um, I know you're in the, are you in the midst of um, raising a Series A as well at the moment. Is that,
1: is that we are. We just started the process. We have a lot of uh, initial interest in our Series A. It's, like I said, it's an exciting time, uh, both on the carrier side and on the investor side. Anyone who wants to reach me, uh, probably best through LinkedIn, uh, Now Insurance, Philip Cabo, uh, or you can go to our website. There's a contact us section. Um, all that correspondence is, is uh, you know, monitored and the, the notes will get to me if you're trying to reach me.
0: Super. Philip, thank you so much for being a guest. I really appreciate it.
1: My pleasure, Alex. Thank you. Thank you. As
0: always, this podcast is brought to you by FinPro Search Partners, often simply known as FinPro. FinPro is an executive recruitment business working in the insurance and insure tech space on an international basis. If you would like to find out more about FinPro, please visit our website, www.wearefinpro.com, or our FinPro company page on LinkedIn. I have been your host, Alex Bond, and I would personally love to connect with anyone who is interested in the changing world of insurance. So feel free to reach out to me directly, um, either on LinkedIn or via my email at at alexatwearefinpro.com. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and I hope to see you back next week. Thank you.